Um, my name is Ron Herman. I'm a uh, professor at the University of Iowa. I'm head of the Iowa Drug Information Network. So I teach drug information. I don't teach on tropical medicine. Um, I have had the privilege of spending uh, six years in southern Africa uh, working full-time with a mission organization. Uh, but uh, that was not uh, a malaria endemic area. Uh, so I don't have a lot of firsthand personal experience with that. I'm on the Advisory Council for Global Health Outreach. I've had the privilege of uh, attending, uh, been on numerous um, uh, short-term mission trips that have gone into malaria endemic areas where we've uh, uh, treated and seen a lot of patients. Uh, but I don't have the firsthand practical knowledge of dealing with a lot of these. Uh, my, my opportunity today is to help to point you to some of the, some of the guidelines that are the current recommendations for, for the treatment of, of malaria. So by the time we're done with our session, you should be able to um, uh, know how to access the, the WHO guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of malaria. So I want you to know how to go out and find those. Those guidelines are, are dynamic. They should be changing. They're not going to be universal. Now, the problem is, is that the current guidelines are 2006. And so they are not the, the most recent. I was, was, was hoping maybe that I could present to you uh, the, the 2009 guidelines, but I don't know exactly where they are in the revision process. Uh, but there, there are not new guidelines. So I'm going to be uh, presenting to you uh, the guidelines as were published in 2006. Now, as I look out across the audience, there's not a lot of you that graduated after 2006. So most of you, you know, you weren't necessarily exposed even to those 2006 guidelines. So this may or may not be new to you. There have been some um, additional people come in. There is a handout. It's up here in the front corner. If anybody wants a handout, there are some up there in the front corner. Uh, and if those disappear, let me know, and I've got a few more. I may run out for Saturday, but um, at least you'll get it. Okay, so we're talking about the, the guidelines. Um, also, you should be able to describe recommendations as it relates to effective treatment with the, the artemisinin-based combination therapies. So these are the new therapies that are being recommended for the treatment of malaria. Most of us, when we were taught how to treat malaria, very different than the way it is currently being recommended to be treated. You should be able to uh, discuss the insecticide uh, nets and, and indoor spraying and, and uh, other personal prevention uh, strategies that can be used if you're traveling into uh, malaria areas. Let's see if I can stretch over here. There are a few more handouts here. Thank you very much. And then the, the last objective then is to be able to recommend appropriate prophylactic regimens for people that are traveling into endemic malaria areas. So those are, those are the four objectives that I'd like to accomplish today. Just some key facts that come from the WHO key facts um, uh, information. Approximately half of the world's population is at risk of malaria, particularly those living in lower income areas. 
A child dies of malaria about every 30 seconds throughout the world. And there are over 247 million cases of malaria in 2006. We've got very reliable statistics for 2006. And so that's where some of these statistics come from, from the 2006 report. Uh, And nearly one million deaths, um, mostly among African children in that year 2006. The good news, however, is that malaria is preventable and it is curable. And so uh, that's, that's the good news that we have to work with. Uh, there is something that we can do about this. There's also a significant economic impact from malaria. The, um, the report is that um, in high-rate areas, the gross domestic product of those countries has been affected by as much as 1.3% in, in the areas where, where high transmission occurs. And over a long term, the aggregate effect has, has resulted in very different, different economic circumstances between those countries where malaria is endemic and where it's not. And so it does have a a major economic impact, and it disproportionately affects poor people who cannot afford the treatment, um, they have limited access to health care, and their families often get trapped in in, uh, communities and in a downward spiral of poverty. Up to about 40% of the public health expenditure in endemic countries is is associated with, with malaria prevention and treatment. Approximately 30 to 50 percent of hospital uh, inpatient admissions in those areas are, are due to uh, this, this uh, uh, condition of malaria as well, and up to 60 percent of the outpatient visits. So it does have a tremendous economic impact on these countries. Another important thing to be concerned about is that travelers from malaria-free areas who are going to hotspots where malaria is Okay, travelers from malaria-free areas, us, going on short-term projects, we are very vulnerable to the disease. So we need to be aware of that, and we need to take appropriate precautions. Now, malaria, it is the, the most common disease uh, in, in many parts of the developing world. It's, it's caused by the protozoa parasite from the plasmodium species, there are four main species that can result in, in malaria infections, and uh, those are, are uh, caused by um, plasmodium falciparum and plasmodium vivax, the two most common uh, that will cause the disease, with, with uh, the uh, uh, falciparum being the most deadly of those organisms. But the uh, malaria and the ovarium are also uh, potential causes of, of malaria as well. The parasite um, is uh, transmitted from the vector, the Anopheles, the female Anopheles mosquito. It's injected from the mosquito into the blood. Eventually, it's going to go into the blood cells. And then from the blood cells, in turn, um, it's going to uh, begin to cause its damage, and some of those red cells are going to burst and, and, and uh, no longer be effective, and that's why anemia is a very common problem associated with malaria. There's actually a fairly complex 
uh, life cycle for, for this whole process. I'm not going to go through it in detail, but in essence, that mosquito lands on an infected individual, draws blood, and from the blood of the infected individual, they're sucking up the gamocytes, the gamocytes that are produced uh, in, in the human body. Those then go into the intestines of the mosquito and they develop and they mature into sporozytes. That mosquito lands on the next person and as they're drawing blood, the saliva of the mosquito gets into the blood with those sporocytes. The sporozytes now enter this unaffected human. They very quickly travel to the liver. In the liver, they'll begin to mature and to develop and uh, uh, from there, then, they'll spread out into the blood and infect the red cells. But as those sporozytes enter the body and deposit in the liver, many of them stay dormant for an extended period of time. And that's going to be important for us to remember as we think about treating malaria. Because many of our treatments affect the, the asexual life cycle of that protozoa in the host. They're not going to affect it in the dormant state. And therefore, we're going to have to treat for a long enough period of time that we can cover a couple asexual life cycles of that organism. And that's why if you're taking prophylaxis for malaria after going to an endemic area, for many of those medicines, you're taking them for four weeks after you return. Because if you had been exposed to that malaria and some of it got in and was dormant in your liver, it may be dormant there for a while before it, it uh, um, comes out and, and, and gets released. So those are just a couple key things that I need you to remember from the, from, from the, the life cycle of the malaria process so that you can understand that as it relates to, to uh, uh, treatment. So who's at risk? Who's at risk for developing malaria? Well, most cases and death are in sub-Saharan Africa, although there are very large pockets in Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East, and parts of Europe. In 2006, malaria was present in 109 countries and territories throughout the world. And we can take a look at the map, and we see here in, in the darker blue areas are, are areas where malaria is endemic. It's where transmission of the malaria occurs. The lighter blue, the almost gray areas, are areas that have been eradicated. Malaria used to be a problem there, but we've been able to get it pretty much under control in those areas. So the areas are beginning to shrink but we've got a long ways to go to be able to deal with that. Now, the circles that you've got there are, are um, areas where there is, is uh, chloroquine resistance. So the circles, the white circles, those are areas where they've identified resistance to the medication chloroquine. And you'll see there it's, there's an awful lot of white circles on there. So most of your areas that you're going to be going to, you're going to find that there is chloroquine resistance. Uh, there are diamonds there that have a dark blue circle in it on, on the map there. It's, it's hard to see that. You can see the diamond shape on your handout. Uh, but those are areas where there's pyrimethamine sulfadoxine resistance. So 
the, historically, we treated malaria with chloroquine. Then we went to the sulfadoxine pyrimethamine combination, Fancidar. We used that for many years. And now you'll see that there is resistance to that in many, many of the malaria endemic areas so that you've got problems there. There are a few stars on, on uh, the map where there is multi-drug resistance, where it's uh, resistant to uh, the sulfadoxine, pyrimethamine, the chloroquine for quinine, um, multiple drug resistance in, in a few areas. They're hard to see. Down in Malaysia, you'll find a star, but there are a few of them. And uh, I think this is... I'm not sure if this is the 2006 map, or I think this one might be just a, 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 a couple years earlier, but I'm sure those areas of multi-drug resistance are, are increasing even more. Uh, and so that is a, a definite concern for us. So going back to who's at risk, we've looked at the areas, but then there are also groups of people uh, that, that are, are at risk, certainly Travelers, people coming from malaria-free areas that don't have any immunity uh, to to malaria, uh, those people are definitely at at risk. I guess Saturday will be a handout-free day. (laughs) So... um, Definitely that group, that subpopulation is at risk. Also, pregnant women are, are very much at risk for, for malaria. Uh, we uh, have found that um, miscarriage is, is, is fairly common. Um, about 10% of maternal deaths in, in malaria endemic areas are due to the malaria itself. Uh, so it is a, a, a definite concern. Uh, so the non-immune pregnant uh, uh, woman is, is at high risk for, for developing malaria. Also, semi-immune pregnant women are at risk, but they're at greater risk for developing anemia. And we all know that anemia in pregnancy is a concern because it puts, it puts uh, the, the potential uh, infant at risk, fetal growth is impaired with 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 uh, 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 anemia, and so it's been reported that there have been about 200,000 uh, infants that die annually as a result of malaria infections during pregnancy, often associated with the uh, with the anemia that that uh, uh, the uh, mother has, and then HIV. Uh, Infected pregnant women are also at greatly increased risk because of the very low immunity that they have uh, uh, to malaria. We also have uh, a potential for large and devastating epidemics of malaria occurring. Now, you don't think of malaria epidemics, but there are a couple situations where they can occur. Uh, When that parasite is introduced into an area uh, where... um, uh, people have had little prior contact with the infecting organism. If you have a population that moves in that, that carries it into an area that's not, there is a potential for an epidemic. If uh, uh, people who have little immunity to the disease move into an area uh, where, where it is endemic, uh, so the exact opposite, either the disease moves in or people move into the disease area, uh, those are potentials for epidemics. Um, 
And then people with low immunity in areas where uh, malaria cases are constant, uh, there, there is that potential. The triggers for those epidemics generally are uh, unusual weather conditions. For example, floods or monsoons that cause uh, um, a migration of people from, from where they were because of their area was damaged. Uh, their homes were lost and destroyed. They have to move into other areas. So those kinds of migrations, also mass migrations due to conflict, uh, war or internal strife, and you get large populations of people moving because of, uh, because of uh, um, the unrest in, in their home area. They move into a malaria area and they were immune or vice versa. They are malaria carriers and they move into an immune area and epidemics can occur. So you have to be aware of that. It's not something that you would think of normally occurring, but in uh, shifts of population, it is something to, to be aware of. So we uh, are now in a situation where we are beginning to see patients and and uh, you have to start thinking about now, how am I going to, to uh, uh, diagnose ma malaria? How are people, uh, how am I going to know if someone has the disease? Well, the symptoms, the first symptoms are very minor and they're very similar to other viral infections. So there's not a great deal of difference. You know, they're going to be fever, headache, chills, and vomiting. So going to be very similar to other viral infections. Uh, those uh, usually appear about 10 to 15 days after a person is infected. So the mosquito injects the, 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 the parasite into the blood. It uh, spends some time in the liver, begins to maybe goes through a dormant phase, um, slowly begins to, to uh, begin its asexual uh, life cycle, and it goes through the process, and then you begin to see symptoms tend to, 10 to 15 days later. If that's not treated promptly, it can progress to severe illness, which can often be fatal. So as it progresses, and that progression sometimes can be very rapid, even within hours. Okay, it's, you know, so it can happen very quickly, the progression from the mild stage to the severe. But in, in the severe cases, then you're going to begin to see a metabolic acidosis. You're going to see severe anemia. You'll see hypoglycemia. It will progress on to coma as, as the cerebral areas begin to uh, get infected. And then it can also result in renal failure. So a lot of things to be concerned about with the, with the pathophysiology as, as uh, that disease begins to progress. Again, my focus today is going to be talking about treatment. Um, I'm sure that if we've got time for questions afterwards, the, the, the people that I surveyed at the beginning that have had lots of experience maybe can give us some insight in, into uh, some of this aspect of it. Uh, but I'm going to try to uh, focus our attention today mostly on, on, on treatment. So what are our treatment goals for, for dealing with the malaria that we begin to see? Well, in uncomplicated malaria, what we want to do is early treatment is going to shorten its duration, it's going to prevent complications, and it's going to avoid majority of the deaths. So uh, we want to think about early treatment. Okay, That's going to be important for us is early treatment. 
Um, treatment aims to cure patients of the disease rather than to diminish the number of parasites carried by the infected person. Now, some parasites, our goal is not to eradicate, but our goal is to limit. And then the body, in turn, will go that next step. And, and when we get rid of the overload, the body is able then to take care of the remainder of the parasites. With malaria, our goal is, is to eliminate. Okay, So our treatment needs to think about not just reducing the load of parasite in the body, but our goal is to get rid of it all. Now, the public health goal for treatment is to reduce transmission of the infection to others. So you're trying to get rid of the reservoir. So as, as a caregiver, your focus on the patient, you're getting rid of the parasite. From the public health perspective, and we all need to wear both hats. We all need to wear both hats. From the public health perspective, we need to think about uh, taking care of treatment and doing it in such a way that we're going to prevent transmission. So we said that Anopheles, female Anopheles mosquito is our vector. So anything we can do to reduce the population of that vector that carries the disease is going to help in the prevention of transmission. So from a public health perspective, we need to keep that in mind. We also have a secondary objective when we're thinking of the patient, um, and, and that is to prevent the emergence and the spread of resistance, and that's both from the patient perspective and from the public health perspective. Okay, resistance is going to be a problem. We're going to talk about it in just a couple slides. And so we need to keep that in mind. We're going to treat, but we also want to do it in such a way that we're trying to prevent the development of resistance. And another thing that we've got to keep in mind, it is secondary, but it has to be part of our thinking, is tolerability. We need to think about the adverse effect profile of the drugs we're using. We can find some big cannons that can kill the parasite, but it could also kill the host, and that's not good. So we need to think very carefully about the medications that we're choosing so that we're able to effectively deal with the parasite without greatly adversely affecting the host. So those are all things that we've got to keep in mind as our treatment goals. With uncomplicated malaria, when we think about severe malaria, our primary objective there is to prevent death, okay? Severe malaria, death is a very real, very strong potential consequence. So our objective there is to prevent death. Uh, and so we're going to be aggressive. We're going to give our antimalarials uh, parenterally. And uh, we're going to do that in order, because that progression can occur so quickly, we need to get those uh, drugs in their high concentrations intravenously. Also, we want to prevent re recrudescence and avoidance of minor adverse effects. Uh, and these are secondary, but it's something we have to think about. And if you're like me, you've got to go to the dictionary and look up recrudescence. It's, it's the resumption of a morbid process or its symptoms after a period of remission. So it's, it's recurrence. So you've treated that patient before. 
uh, now all of a sudden they've got symptoms again. Okay, could very well be because some of the organisms were dormant in the liver. Could be a re-exposure, but in most cases it's because some of the organisms were dormant in the liver. Now they've come back and are active again. So again, that's something you need to be thinking about. It's it's not the foremost thing in your mind uh, when you've got a severe case. Cerebral malaria, when it gets into uh, uh, the brain, your primary concern is to prevent neurological deficits. Seizures can be a very real, very significant problem in these patients, and you're trying to uh, prevent those, those uh, seizures and their consequences. Severe malaria in pregnancy, there you are concerned about saving the life of the mother. It's going to be your primary objective. Your secondary is going to be doing everything you can to protect that infant uh, that, that uh, uh, will soon be be uh, coming into this world. Uh, so uh, we've got to uh, uh, keep that in mind as, as our, our treatment goal there. Well, according to the guidelines from the WHO, how do we diagnose malaria? Well, it's going to be based on clinical criteria, a clinical diagnosis, uh, but the recommendations say that that clinical diagnosis alone doesn't have very good specificity, okay? Why is that? Well, we said it was because it's like, the symptoms are like a lot of viral diseases, okay? So it's kind of hard to distinguish based just on those early symptoms. And so, you know, that clinical diagnosis is important, but it's not real specific. And so it should really be supplemented by detection of parasites in the blood, Okay, or parasitological or confirmatory diagnosis. Now, that, that um, diagnosis of the parasites in the blood historically was always done with a blood smear. And uh, you're looking uh, for uh, the presence of, of uh, uh, those uh, protozoa in, in uh, the blood smear itself. Uh, now there are uh, rapid diagnostic tests that can be done. They uh, still are relatively expensive. Uh, they're getting better, and the hope is that in the future they'll continue to get even better um, cost-wise. Um, uh, but there are uh, rapid diagnostic tests that are, are now available. Can, can I ask a question? What yeah. What is the false negative of those rapid diagnostic tests? You know, um, that, um, I, I honestly can't answer that. Um, the manufacturer of that diagnostic test is is required uh, to put that in their their labeling so that should uh, be indicated in the labeling um, I can uh, tell you that 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 I've actually looked at that uh, to answer that specifically but you should be able to find that in the labeling of that diagnostic test so I don't know if anyone else has has uh, knows the answer to that. If so, uh, jump in. But but I personally don't know. Uh, but it should be. It's required to be in in the labeling. Uh, their their uh, rate of detection. It will differ drastically depending on who the manufacturer is. Yeah. So you've got some companies now coming up in China, Mexico, South Korea that have some really irreproducible tests that are giving a bad name to this whole field of diagnostics. Yeah, and those you probably won't find on the label, <laughs> their, their result. You don't find they're cheap, so people are finding them on the Internet and buying 
So, yeah. Okay, good, good. I appreciate that, and, and thank you for the assistance. Okay, um, let's continue on and talk about, about the, the diagnosis. This is coming from, again, the WHO criteria. Um, they say that in settings where the parasitological diagnosis is not currently available, okay, so maybe on a mission trip where you are, you don't have access to it. Um, this is uh, the recommendation. The decision to provide anti-malarial treatment must be based on prior probability of the illness being malaria. So you have to know, are you in an area that has a really high incidence of malaria? That, that's going to influence your decision about whether to treat or not without confirmation of the parasite. Also, you need to carefully weigh the risk of withholding, okay, severe consequences of malaria, the risk of withholding, um, uh, compared to the risk of um, giving the malaria treatment. And for many of our drugs, that risk is relatively minor, not inconsequential, but relatively minor compared to the risk of the disease. So you have to keep those in mind. So in a setting where there's a very high, where, where the risk of malaria is very low, the clinical diagnosis of uncomplicated malaria should be based on the degree of exposure to malaria and a history of fever in the previous three days with no other features of other severe diseases. So if they, within the past three days, um, they've had um, history, if you know that they've had exposure uh, to, to uh, mosquitoes that could have been transmitting it, then you will uh, make your clinical diagnosis without that parasitological confirmation if it's not available to you. In settings where there's very high risk of malaria, then uh, you will make your diagnosis if within the previous 24 hours uh, the uh, symptoms have occurred and there's presence of anemia and again, you know, probably the pallor of the palms uh, is going to be uh, sufficient to help you make that initial assessment of anemia uh, in in uh, children who uh, so in children. So that's that will be um, what you're going to base your your decision on in in many of your cases when you don't have it. So the official recommendation extracted from those from the GHO guidelines is that in areas of low to moderate transmission, prompt parasitological confirmation of the diagnosis is recommended before treatment is started. This should be achieved through microscopy or where not available rapid diagnostic tests. So low transmission areas don't treat until you can confirm is, is, is what their recommendation is. Their recommendation is uh, in areas of high stable malaria transmission uh, and there's prior probability of a child uh, being uh, caused by malaria is high. So there's 
lots of history of malaria, the incidence is high in that area, then children under five should be treated on the basis of clinical diagnosis of malaria. And then in older children and adults, then it's recommended that you wait until you have parasitological confirmation before you initiate treatment. Okay, so that's their official recommendation. In suspected cases of severe malaria, a parasitological confirmation of diagnosis is recommended, but in the absence or in a delay of getting that done, then start treatment. So if you can do it, you can draw the blood and send it off, and it's got to go a day away to have the microscopic evaluation if you don't have access to the rapid test or access to a reliable rapid test. Um, then, um, you know, start treatment while that smear goes and gets read by a lab nearby. Uh, so th that's their recommendation in those three settings. Just general treatment recommendations that the, G, uh, the WHO has is that prompt treatment for all episodes of the disease within 24 hours of onset of symptoms uh, should occur. So you want to start within 24 hours your treatment, okay? Just in general, that's the principle that, that you should uh, go by, that you would like to start your treatment within 24 hours. Use of insecticide-treated nets for nighttime prevention of mosquito bites is strongly recommended. So in endemic areas, use the nets, use the mosquito-treated uh, ones. We're going to look at that in more detail uh, towards the end. For pregnant women in highly endemic areas, preventive doses of sulfadoxine pyrimethamine, the Fansidar, uh, should be used periodically to clear the placenta of parasites. So the WHO recommends that you use that, that Fansidar, that sulfadoxine pyrimethamine combination, uh, to prevent the accumulation of the parasites in the placenta. In, in pregnant women because they're they're so vulnerable. And that's without any symptoms. And that's without any symptoms. That's what they're recommending. Okay, indoor uh, residual spraying to kill mosquitoes that rest on the walls and the roofs of houses. So they're recommending the routine use of of spraying uh, to prevent uh, to kill those mosquitoes at night before going to bed uh, uh, to to um, allow uh, safety there. Okay, those of us in the room, when we were taught how to treat malaria, we were going to use chloroquine. Okay, later on, we were going to use Fancidar. Severe uh, malaria, we're using quinine. Virtually all areas of the world, those are no longer recommended uh, because of resistance. Okay, we're going to talk about you need to know your country, your specific area. We're going to talk about how to find that a little bit later. Um, but uh, in general, these are not recommended anymore. Okay, the current WHO recommendations are that to the best available treatment, particularly for Plasmodium falciparum uh, malaria, is a combination of drugs known as artemisinin-based combination therapies, or ACTs. So that's their current recommendation is that you should be using one of those. Single drug treatment, so using a single drug instead of a combination, uh, results 
in a greater chance for parasites to evolve and become resistant to the medicines. So they're not recommending single drug therapy, but that instead uh, that we're using this combination therapy. The guidelines talk about growing resistance. Uh, uh, Plasmodium has become resistant to chloroquine and some of the earlier sulfa drugs and uh, that have been used for years, and so very rarely are they recommended that they be used. Um, Instead, um, we're now actually starting to think about and be concerned, not that we've seen it, but we're starting to be concerned about resistance developing to these artemisinin-based compounds. Because as we make the move to go exclusively to treating in this manner, there is the potential for uh, resistance to develop there. And at this point in time, there are no effective alternatives to the artemisins that we have as of yet discovered. Again, they're continuing to work on this, uh, but there's nothing in the, in the near-sighted future uh, that's going to uh, uh, provide additional uh, treatment uh, for, for malaria. Well, so these are the recommendations, but what evidence supports these recommendations? That evidence is provided in the guidelines. The guidelines, as we're going to look in a minute, they're 207, or 266 pages long. So it's, it's not a, a little uh, 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 reading that you would take with you into the bathroom to try to go through. Um, it, you know, there's a lot of detail uh, in these, and, and they provide the evidence for these recommendations summarized there. And, and there is a summary of randomized controlled trials as it relates to monotherapy compared to the combination therapy where artemisin is one of the components. And that uh, they did a meta-analysis of 11 randomized trials, and they looked at single drug, either oral uh, amodioquine or mefloquine or the sulfadoxine pyrimethamine combination. Each of those is single therapies uh, in uh, combination with one of the artemisin agents. And, and they, uh, uh, both of those were given oral. And they found a clear benefit in adding uh, three days of artemisinin to one of those other agents for uncomplicated malaria. Uh, they, the odds ratio when they did the analysis was 0.34, so they found a 66% reduction uh, in, in uh, the, the treatment failure rates. And that was statistically significant. The confidence interval was very narrow, so there was not a great deal of variability. So you are fairly confident that that combination is going to have a significant reduction in your failure rate. So you're going to get much better results when you're combining the two. They also looked at that combination and they saw at day 28 fewer parasitological failures, and uh, they not only looked at that, which I had mentioned, but then they also looked at the, the gamma, the, the gamma, the gamma cytocytes, um, uh, and they compared their baseline values and then uh, after treatment, and they saw a significant reduction, which was very important. And, and so uh, that is, is uh, uh, important to keep in mind. They also, in those studies, or in six of those 11 studies, they looked at what if we use one-day treatment instead of three treatment. 
And they saw with one-day treatment that there was fewer treatment failures by day 28, but it was significantly better when you gave three days of treatment. And so the bottom line is, is the, the WHO recommends three days of treatment with the artemisinin component because you have a much better, you know, I think it was a 93% um, you know, uh, success rate uh, when, when you um, did the combination therapy. And so it really is recommended that you do three days. Remember we said that life cycle, that asexual life cycle, is about two days. So if you're giving the drugs for three days and they still stay around in the body longer than that because of their half-life, then you cover at least two of the asexual life cycles of the, that, that uh, um, uh, protozoa that's, that's in the body that, that you're trying to deal with. So uh, it is important that we do three-day treatment. The guidelines also look at studies that have compared oral uh, the sulfadoxine uh, pyrimethamine with chloroquine, and they compared that uh, uh, to just the oral Fancidar itself. And those studies, five randomized controlled trials, found insufficient evidence to show any improvement when you use the two treatments together. So it didn't work to combine Fancidar with the chloroquine. It gave you uh, no additional benefit, and they didn't provide any information on the adverse effects, so you didn't know how that changed it. With the increasing resistance of chloroquine throughout the world, uh, that means that this isn't an option. So the WHO recommends against chloroquine alone or the chloroquine uh, Fancidar combination. They also looked at uh, the, the uh, sulfadoxine pyrimethamine combination with um, uh, the uh, amiodoquin, and there they compared that combination with amiodoquin alone or with the sulfadoxine pyrimethazine uh, combination um, alone compared to uh, with, with the amiodoquin. There they found uh, the systematic review uh, saw that when you combine the emoticon, uh and looked at the 28-day follow-up, there was no difference when compared to uh, the sulfadoxine-pyrimethamine uh, combination. So you combine those two, no additional benefit. Okay, three subsequent randomized trials also found no significant difference. So systematic review, three additional trials, uh, no difference in cure rates or adverse events. When they looked at uh, the, um, the systematic review that compared the, the um, um, combination, the uh, sulfadoxine pyrimethamine with uh, amiodoquin, and they compared that to amiodoquin alone, they found... Um, there uh, that there was no difference, but after that systematic review, they, they went on and they saw that there was one additional study that showed that there was a slightly better cure rate, but there were more mild adverse events when you use the combination. So they concluded, based on that study, that if more effective medicines are not available, if you don't have ACTs available to you, you could, as an interim measure, 
use amiodarquine and sulfadoxine pyrimethamine together. So that particular combination as an interim measure could be used if you don't have access to the ACTs. Okay, that's based on weak evidence. It came from from uh, um, a, uh, uh, one single randomized controlled trial. Okay, all of these recommendations are summarized in a very nice table. Um, Time-wise, where are we going? So. Basically, the WHO says the treatment of choice for uncomplicated falciparum malaria is a combination of two or more antimalarials with different mechanisms of action. That will help to prevent resistance. So you want two different mechanisms of actions. ACTs are the recommended, okay? And the level of evidence there, S comes from a systematic review, T comes from trials, O comes from observational studies, so um, the ACT recommendation is based on a systematic review that of those 11 randomized controlled trials. Um, the following ACTs are recommended. Uh, artemeter, lumefentrine combination, the artesunate amiodoquine or the artesunate plus mefloquine or the artesunate plus sulfadoxine pyrimethamine. But what we're going to look at in a minute is that what you use really needs to be based upon what the country you're going to recommends. And there are specific recommendations from every country. And those can now be found on the web and you'll want to see because each country is monitoring their own uh, rates of resistance. And so they're choosing a combination in their country that's based upon what their resistance patterns are showing. The choice of eight, uh, um, so that's that next uh, block. And then the artemisin derivative components, they should be given for at least three days for an optimal effect, okay? Treat for three days for optimum effect. The artemeter-lufantrine combination uh, is a six-dose regimen. And lastly, the amiodoquine-sulfadoxine-pyrimethamine combination could be considered as an interim if an ACT is not available. So that's the bottom line of their recommendations for uncomplicated malaria. So we're, we'll look at these. Uh, combinations. The artemeter lumefentrine, the coartem, was just approved in the U.S. by the FDA in April of 2009. It's the only one of these that's available uh, uh, in an approved form in the United States. Most of the areas where we're going, you'll have access to the others. Uh, but uh, as far as being approved by the FDA and marketed in the U.S., it's just the first one, the coartem. Uh, the amiodoquone was available as a single agent in the U.S. Uh, for a number of years from Park Davis, um, Camoquin, but they discontinued it. So it's no longer available uh, as a single agent here in the U.S. Um, and then uh, uh, that, so... Uh, the last one is the one that can be used as an interim. So, again, I extracted these tables directly from the guidelines. Yes? Um, uh, yes. Um, there, there is a... Um, 
there is a certain concern, but but it, I think it's generally recognized as safe. Um, so the the coartem uh, comes as a fixed dose combination. The two drugs are both present: uh, 20 milligrams of the artementher and 120 milligrams of the lumefentrine. Uh, you see it's recommended there can be dosed either on body weight or age. And the dose is there. Now, basically you're giving six doses. The official recommendation is you give the first dose while they're there in the clinic, have them take one eight hours later, then one 24 hours later, then one 36 hours later, and then one 48 hours later. Most of the patients we're dealing with, that's kind of not going to make a lot of sense to them since, you know, they're keeping track of the sun and not, not a watch. Yes? Uh, 24 hours later, you mean after the eight hours? After the f- zero dose, after the first dose, okay? Now, so practically what they're saying is, well, tell the patient to take the first one now and about eight hours later tell them approximately when in relationship to the next meal or whatever, uh, eight hours later, and then take one in the morning and one in the evening each day for two days. So give them one now, tell them when to take the next one in relationship to when you're giving it to them, and then go two days. Um, bottom line, for many people, you just tell them take one now, one in the evening, and then morning and evening for two days. So uh, you've got to be practical. Ideally, this is the way they'd like to see it administered, but you've got to be practical. The artesunate amodioquine combination. Right now, two separate tablets. They are working on developing a co-formulation where the two will be together in one dosage form. Essentially, you're giving uh, 4 milligram of the artesunate and uh, 10 milligram per kilogram of the amiodoquin. You're giving it once a day for three days. Okay? So this one isn't going to be twice a day. It's once a day, every day for three days. There's now a combination of artemeter plus lumifantrine as a powder for oral suspension for infants 5 to 15 kilograms. Okay. We have that available. Okay. Okay, so you can go to the Blessings, the Blessings International booth. Go check it out. They do have a powder formulation that can be used for infants. So you don't have to have them crush a tablet, mix it with a little porridge, and give it. Uh, they do have a powder formulation that can be. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that I, I meant to mention when I talked about the coartum, one of the things that you should tell your patients when you're taking that. Take it with some milk or other fatty food. It is much, much better absorbed um, in a fatty environment. Okay, You need that, that uh, lipid to help the absorption of that drug into the system. So the coartum really needs to be administered with milk or some other type of, of fatty mood, food. Um, so the artesunate... Amiodoquone, you're giving it once a day, both of them once a day uh, for three days, uh, based on age. The artesunate mefloquine, you're going to dose that based on age as well. The um, artesunate, again, four milligram per kilo, it's going to be once a day for three days. The mefloquine can be taken once a day, although it's given in a dose of 25 milligram per kilo. Many people get vomiting 
with 25 milligrams per kilo. And so what they're recommending is that for children 7 and over, you split that. And rather than giving in the full on day 2 of, of the mefloquine, you'll give 15 milligram per kilo, which would be 500 milligrams for that age range, 7 to 13. And then half of that, or about 10 milligram per kilo, um, on the second day, so that would be roughly 250 milligrams for that, that range. So you're splitting that 25 milligram per kilo up into two doses, 15 per kilo the day two and 10 milligram per kilo day three. And that's because of the vomiting that's sometimes associated with it. Um, the... Um, Artesunate, sulfamidoxine. Now, bottom line, the guidelines go on. I talk just about uncomplicated malaria. The guidelines go on and they talk about what to do with fever and seizures and how to deal with someone who can't take oral medications and how to treat pregnant women. It addresses that issue that, that was raised earlier. It talks about uh, infants. It talks about severe malaria. When do you use parenteral medications? There is a parenteral artemisinin compound now available. Uh, it talks about all of those. We don't have time to go through those. I wanted to just highlight uh, some of these things. Just a couple quick things on prevention. The malaria vaccine. There is potential for um, evidence that suggests that there may be a, a, a malaria vaccine that could be developed. Uh, they've done some immunization with irradiated sportozoa. There seems to be some response in the laboratory testing environment. When they've taken that to humans, they're not seeming to get that same response. However, they've noticed that in, there is a natural acquired immunity in humans during the first two decades of life. First of all, it progressively builds up. You're resistant. You, very few children after a progressive immunization uh, just, just by passive exposure, um, they don't die. They'll, they'll get the sick, but they don't die. And then later on, they don't even get hardly sick. You know, they get very mild symptoms, and there seems to be a progressive development of immunity. So there's potential, but there's lots of things that need to be overcome in, in identifying that vaccine. Uh, we don't know the exact correlates. Um, for, for the immune protection yet, so we're trying to discover those. We don't have any good animal models for testing malaria, you know, and so all testing needs to be done in humans, and so you gotta be really careful. Um, and there are no, there are so many plasmoid proteins that it's hard to identify the results. There's a lot of research that's being done. The Bill uh, and Melinda Gates Foundation has put in a lot of money to the development of malaria vaccine. I think we will see one, but I just don't know exactly how soon. Okay, so potential there. Prevention. Um, again, personal. Um, I've mentioned these things before. Um, I, I'm going to show you um, uh, a guideline that talks about these in detail, so I won't, I won't touch them now, uh, but environmental protection as well. Insecticide resistance, there is a concern. Uh, we don't really have any alternatives, and so it's extremely important that we be monitoring for potential resistance to, to the insecticides. Now, as you travel... 
as we travel on short-term trips, we need to be concerned that we are at risk. And so we do need to take prophylaxis. Um, these are the tables extracted from the guidelines. I'm not going to go through them. The first is malarone, uh, once-a-day treatment, continue seven days afterwards. Chloroquine, you can take that once a week. Again, um, some problems there, chloroquine, progonal. Uh, doxycycline, that's once a day. You need to continue for four weeks afterwards. Um, mefloquine, uh, once a week. Continue for four weeks afterwards. Uh, potential um, side effects associated with that and proguanol. Again, you'll look at these in the guidelines, but more importantly, you're going to go to the country specific and you're going to take a look at those. So where do you get that information? Well, the WHO guidelines, you've got the website. It's up on the screen. It's on your handout. Um, go to the guidelines. Again, 266 pages. I don't, um, I'm not going to print that out and carry it around with me, uh, but I can easily download that PDF and have it on my laptop so I can look at it if I need it. Um, the anti-malaria drug policies by region. Not a document you can download, but it's a website. You go and you choose your country, and it tells you what the current prophylaxis recommendation is. It tells you what the preferred combination of ACT is. It gives you information about the level of resistance in the country, a website you want to become familiar with because there is no... Standard, this is what you do in all parts of the world. What you're doing in Malaysia is very different than what you're going to do in Kenya. Uh, so uh, you'll want to go uh, to that site, uh, go either to the map or to the table with the country, and, and it'll give you all the information you need. And lastly, the technical report on malaria vector control talks about the mosquito nets. It talks about the insecticides. It talks about... Um, the, the, the sprays that you can use, uh, either uh, the environmental ones uh, or the personal ones that you would uh, spray on yourself. So in conclusion, malaria control requires an integrated approach, okay, with emphasis on prevention and prompt treatment with effective anti-malarials. Key interventions include prompt effective artemisin and combination therapy, the use of insecticide nets, the uh, indoor residual spraying and aggressive prophylactics of uh, individuals who are going into uh, endemic areas. So with that, um, again, the, the documents, you can download those. There's one's 266 pages and the other I think is 100 and some, but a wealth of information to help you. The website has the country-specific information you need. Thank you very much for your time.